Hi everyone. So today for our very first Friends of the Carriage House podcast, I'm going to be reading from the book, Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar by Cheryl Strayed. So Dear Sugar was um, a an advice column that years ago, Cheryl Strayed, who later became very famous for writing the book Wild, um, that she wrote. She was the anonymous uh, advice columnist. So this book is a compilation of um, letters that people wrote to her and the advice that she wrote back. So I'm going to be reading um, the letter or the chapter called Beauty and the Beast. Dear Sugar, I'm an average 26-year-old man, exceptional only in that I'm incredibly ugly. I don't hate myself, and I don't have body dysmorphia. I was born with a rare blood disorder that has had its way with my body from a young age. It has left me with physical deformities and joint abnormalities. One side of my body is puny and atrophied compared to the other. I would not have been a beauty even without this illness, but it's impossible to remedy the situation with normal exercise and physical therapy. I'm also overweight, which I admit I should be able to fix. I'm not an unhealthy eater, but like anyone, I could consume less. I'm not ugly in a mysterious or interesting way like a number of popular actors. I look like what I am, a broken man. My problem, and my problem with most advice outlets, is that there's not much of a resource for people like me. In movies, ugly characters are redeemed by being made beautiful in time to catch the eye of their love interest, or else their ugliness is a joke and they aren't actually ugly. In practical life, we're taught that personality matters more than physicality, but there are plenty of attractive, or at least normal-looking, people who are also decent human beings. What is there for people like me who will never be remotely attractive and who are just average on the inside? I'm a happy person and have a very fulfilling life and good friends. I have a flexible job that allows me enough free time to pursue my hobbies with employers who understand when I have to miss work for health reasons. But when it comes to romance, I'm left out in the cold. I don't want my entire life to pass without knowing that type of love. Is it better to close off that part of myself and devote my time and energies to the aspects of my work of my life that work? Or should I try some novel approaches to matchmaking? My appearance makes online dating an absolute no-go. In person, people react well to my outgoing personality, but would not consider me a romantic option. I'm looking for new ideas, or, if you think it's a lost cause, permission to give up. Thanks for your help. Signed, Beast with a Limp. Dear Beast, Once upon a time, I had a friend who was severely burned over most of his body. Six weeks after his 25th birthday, he didn't realize that there was a gas leak in the stove of his apartment, so he lit a match and his entire kitchen blew up. He barely survived. When he got out of the hospital four months later, his nose and fingers and ears were burnt nubs, and his skin was more hide than flesh, like that of a pink lizard with mean streaks of white glazed over the top. I'll call him Ian. I'm a fire-breathing monster, he roared to my kids the Thanksgiving before last, crouched beneath them near the edge of the bed. They shrieked with joy and fake fear, screaming, monster, monster. Ian looked at me, and then he looked at Mr. Sugar, and together we laughed and laughed. 
You know why? Because he was a fire-breathing monster. My kids had never known him any other way, and neither had their dad and I. I think it's true that Ian didn't know who he was before he was burned, either. He was a man made by the fire. And because of the fire, he was also a rich man. He'd received a settlement from the gas company. He'd grown up lower middle class, and by the time I met him, when I was 27 and he was 31, he reveled in being a bit of a snob. He bought exquisite food and outrageously overpriced booze. He collected art and hung it in a series of hip and tony lofts. He wore impeccable, impeccable clothes and drove around in fancy cars. He loved having money. He often said that being burned was the best thing that had ever happened to him. That if he could travel back in time, he would not unlight that match. To unlight the match would be to lose the money that had brought him so much happiness. He had an incredible life, he said, and he was grateful for it. But there was one thing, one tiny thing. He was sorry he couldn't have love, romantic love, sexual love, love, love. But you can, I insisted, though it's true that when I first met him, I was skittish about holding his gaze because he was, in fact, a ghastly sight, his body a rough yet tender landscape of the incruciatingly, excruciatingly pain and the distorted familiar. I met him when I was a waitress at a swank French bar where he was a regular. He sat near the place where I had to go to order and collect my drinks at the bar, and as I worked, I took him in bit by bit, looking at him only peripherally. We chatted about books and art and shoes as he drank $20 shots of tequila and ate plates of meticulously constructed pate, and I zipped from the bar to the tables and back to the bar delivering things. After a while, <clears throat> he became more than a customer I had to be nice to. He became my friend. By then, I'd forgotten that he looked like a monster. It was the strangest thing, but it was true how profoundly my vision of Ian changed once I knew him. How his burnt face became instead his bright blue eyes, his scarred and stumpy hands, the sound of his voice. It wasn't that I couldn't see his monstrosity anymore. It was still there in all its grotesque glory. But alongside it, there was something else, something more ferocious, his beauty. I wasn't the only one who saw it. There were so many people who loved Ian, and we all insisted over and over again that our love was proof that someday someone would love him. Not in the way we loved him, not just as a friend, but in that way. Ian would not hear a word of it. To so much as contemplate the possibility of having a boyfriend was unbearable to him. He'd made the decision to close himself off to romantic love way back when he was still in the hospital. No one would love a man as ugly as him, he thought. When I argued with him, he said that I had no idea about the importance of physical appearance in gay culture. When I told him I thought there were surely a few men on the planet willing to love a burned man, he said he would make do with the occasional services of a prostitute. When I said I thought that his refusal to open himself up to romantic love was based on fear, and conquering that fear was the last thing he had to heal from the trauma of his accident, he said the, the discussion was over, and so it was. One night after I got off work, Ian and I went to another bar to have a drink. When we sat down, he told me it was the anniversary of his accident, and I asked him if he would tell me the entire story of that morning, and he did. He said he'd just woken up and that he was gazing absently at a sleeve of saltine crackers on the counter the moment his kitchen flashed into blue flame. He was amazed to see the crackers and the sleeve disintegrate and disappear in an instant. It seemed to him a beautiful, almost magical occurrence, and then, in the next moment, he realized that he was engulfed in the blue, blue flame and disintegrating too. He told me about falling down onto the floor and moaning and how his roommate had awakened but been too afraid to come to him, so instead he yelled words to comfort to Ian from another room. 
words of comfort to Ian from another room. It was the people who'd been on the sidewalk down below and seen the windows blow out of his apartment who'd been the first to call 911. He told me about how the paramedics talked to him kindly as they carried him down the stairs on a stretcher and how one of them told him that he might die and how he cried out at the thought of that and how the way he sounded to himself in that cry was the last thing he remembered before he lost consciousness for weeks. He would never have a lover. He would be happy. He would be sad. He would be petty and kind. He would be manipulative and generous. He would be cutting and sweet. He would move from one cool loft to another and change all the color schemes. He would drink and stop drinking and start drinking again. He would buy original art and a particular breed of dog. He would make a load of money in real estate and lose another load of it on a business endeavor. He would reconcile with people he loved and estrange himself from others. He would not return my phone calls and he would read my first book and send me the nicest note. He would give my first child a snappy pair of ridiculously expensive baby trousers and sigh and say he loathed children when I told him I was pregnant with my second. He would roar at Thanksgiving. He would crouch beneath the bed and say that he was a fire-breathing monster and he would laugh with all the grown-ups who got the joke. And not even a month later, a week before Christmas, when he was 44, he would kill himself. He wouldn't even leave a note. I've thought many times about why Ian committed suicide and I thought about it again when I read your letter, Beast. It would be so easy to trace Ian's death back to that match, the one he said he would not unlight if he could the one that made him appear to be a monster and therefore unfit for romantic love, while also making him rich and therefore happy. That match is so temptingly symbolic, like something hard and golden in a fairy tale that exacts a price equal to its power. But I don't think his death can be traced back to that. I think it goes back to his decision to close himself off to romantic love, to refuse to allow himself even the possibility of something so very essential because of something so superficial as the way he looked. And your question to me, the very core of it, is circling around the same thing. It's not, will I ever find someone who will love me romantically, though in fact that question is there and it's one I will get to, but rather, am I capable of letting someone do so? This is where we must dig. You will never have my permission to close yourself off to love and give up. Never. You must do everything you can to get what you want and need to find that type of love. It's there for you. I know it's arrogant of me to say so, but what the hell do I know about looking like a monster or a beast? Not a thing. But I do know that we are here, all of us, beasts and monsters and beauties and wallflowers alike, to do the best we can, and every last one of us can do better than give up. Especially you. Anyone who has lived in the world for 26 years looking like what he is, a broken man, is not just average on the inside. Because of that, the journey you take to find love isn't going to be average either. You're going to have to be brave. You're going to have to walk into the darkest woods without a stick. You aren't conventionally attractive or even, as you say, normal looking. And as you know already, a lot of people will immediately X you out as a romantic partner for this reason. That's okay. You don't need those people. By stepping aside, they've done you a favor. Because what you've got left after the fools have departed are the old souls and the true hearts. Those are the uber cool sparkle rocket mind blowers we're after. Those are the people worthy of your love. And you, my dear, are worthy of them. By way of offering your up evidence of your didn't-even-get-started defeat, you mentioned movies in which the ugly characters are redeemed by being made beautiful in time to catch the eye of their love interest. But that's not a story I buy, hun. We are way more ancient than that. We have better, truer stories. You know that fairy tale called Beauty and the Beast? 
Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont abridged Gabriel Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve's original La Belle et la Bête in 1756, and it is her version that most of us know today. There are many details that I'll omit here, but the story goes roughly like this. A beautiful young woman named Belle lives with a beast in a castle. Belle is touched by the beast's grace and generosity and compelled by his sensitive intelligence. But each night when the beast asks Belle to marry him, she declines because she's repulsed by his appearance. One day she leaves the beast to visit her family. She and the beast agree that she'll return in a week, but when she doesn't, the beast is bereft. In sorrow, he goes into the rose garden and collapses. This is how Belle finds him when she returns, half dead from heartbreak. Seeing him in this state, she realizes that she truly loves him, not just as a friend, but in that way. So she professes her love and weeps. When her tears fall onto the beast, he is transformed into a handsome prince. What I want you to note is that Belle loved the beast when he was still a beast, not a handsome prince. It is only once she loved him that he was transformed. You will be likewise transformed, transformed, the same as love transforms us all, but you have to be fearless enough to let it transform you. I'm not convinced that you are just yet. You say that people like you, but don't consider you a romantic option. How do you know that? Have you made overtures and been rebuffed or are you projecting your own fears and insecurities onto others? Are you closing yourself off from the possibility of romance before anyone has the chance to feel romantically toward you? Who are you interested in? Have you ever asked anyone out on a date or to kiss you or to put his or her hands down your pants? I can tell you by your articulate, honest, sad, strong letter that you are one cool cat. I'm pretty certain, based on your letter alone, that a number of people would consider putting their hands down your pants. Would you let one of them? If the answer is yes, how would you respond once he or she got there? I don't mean to, to be a dirty smartass, though I am, in fact, a dirty smartass. I mean to inquire without diminishing the absolute reality that many people would disregard you as a romantic possibility based solely on your appearance about whether you've asked yourself if the biggest barrier between you and the romantic hot monkey love that's possible between you and the people who will, yes, without question, be interested in you is not your ugly exterior, but your beautifully vulnerable interior. What do you need? What do you need to do to convince yourself that someone might see you as a lover instead of a friend? How might you shut down your impulse to shut down? These questions are key to your ability to find love, sweet pea. You asked me for practical matchmaking solutions, but I believe once you allow yourself to be psychologically ready to give and receive love, your best course is to do what everyone who is looking for love does. Put your best self out there with as much transparency, trans transparency and sincerity and humor as possible, both online and in person, with strangers and among your circle of friends. Inhabit the beauty that lives in your beastly body and strive to see the beauty in all the other beasts. Walk without a stick into the darkest woods. Believe that the fairy tale is true. Yours, Sugar. Well, guys, that was our first episode on the Friends of the Carriage House Facebook page podcast. Um, please help me name this podcast by putting a comment under the Facebook post. Um, and uh, if you'd like to help me make these, which I would love, please also um, say that in a comment or get in touch with me, message me or something. 
What we heard was an excerpt from Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar by Cheryl Strayed. Um, It was published in 2012, and um, the whole book is highly recommended by me. I think um, the questions and the advice are all very fun to read, and um, check it out if you get a chance. And join us tomorrow for our next installation of this podcast. Have a great day.